0: I welcome all of you uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, and uh, uh, visitors uh, today. We have a few folks who have traveled, are traveling, and we just, we're just just glad you're spending this time with us. And, um, it's, uh, that clock says 1130, um, which means that we are going to go over today. If you, uh, if you need to leave, uh, God bless your day, just slip out and, and, and no one will think uh, ill thoughts of, towards you. Uh, but we are going to look at Psalm 23, and it's just, um, uh, just an amazing portion of the Word of God that we're going to be looking at together, while the children are looking at the same passage. We are doing an exciting three-year journey through the Bible. And We're doing it in conjunction with the family curriculum, the Gospel Project curriculum. Next week, uh, Nick Stinson was right here. I think he might have went with uh, the kids who might be in the classroom today. Next week, Nick is going to be preaching, taking us into the life of Solomon and Solomon's request for wisdom from God. Then the week after that, Jalen Carter is going to be preaching, and Jalen is preaching on the book of Ecclesiastes. You may have been here last year when you preached on Job, when you came to me afterwards and said, I really want to preach Ecclesiastes. And I said, well, it could happen, and it, it is happening. And then uh, the Sunday after that, Josh Fillmore will be preaching on the building of the temple of the Lord uh, in Jerusalem. So it's, a, it's an amazing time. We've been in the life of David, and today is the last opportunity we'll have to spend any time on a, on a Sunday morning considering uh, the section of, of the Bible that we, we know as the book of Psalms. And the Psalms are poems and songs of praise and prayer representing the devotional life of the people of God in the Old Testament. And um, they come to us from a period uh, in the history of uh, God's people where they are established in the land as a nation under under God with the temple at Jerusalem. And uh, as I say, they represent the devotional lives of the pe- of God's people and if you um, uh, hang around church people um, much you you will hear us talk about our devotional lives well I hope you'll hear us make reference to our devotional lives and that's a kind of a catchphrase and really just just really means the personal our personal lives as we, as we allow the Lord to to speak to us from his word and, and lift our hearts in prayer to the Lord, as we take time, sometimes we call it a, a quiet time or a time in our days when we just kind of stop. And most of us prefer to do it in the morning, although not everybody is a morning person, and I realize that. But, but, but the Psalms and the, Pro, uh, and the Proverbs as well, we're not going to have... Any time really, I know that uh, Nick is going to talk a little bit about uh, the Proverbs uh, and Solomon's request for uh, wisdom from the Lord and so on. But, but great summer reading, great summer reading to read through the book of Psalms as we're, as we're trying to make our way through Scripture from beginning to end. Uh, great opportunity to read through the Psalms this summer and, and while you're at it, read through the Proverbs. Great to, to read a psalm, a couple of psalms in the morning, and, and then read a chapter of the Proverbs or whatever, or vice versa. It's it's just a great way to uh, spend some time with the Lord and allowing Him to to speak to our uh, speak uh, through His Word to our lives. Um, the the psalms are devotional in nature; uh, they're prayers, proclamations. Some of them are. Uh, uh, there's there's songs. Uh, some of them are songs of lament. There are cries of cries for help, um, even complaints and questions rising up out of out of the writers' hearts uh, that they address to the Lord. And uh, um, I, as we've been looking at the life of David over the last several weeks, I've mentioned numerous times how almost. Half, roughly half of the psalms have David's name on them. And I have a suspicion that he wrote more than that. Those are just the ones he autographed. Um, but, uh, uh, but the, and and, and of the psalms of David, ma- many of them have, a, a number of them, uh, give us the occasion of his writing. So, for example, Psalm 34 uh, says that it is, this is a psalm of David when he changed his behalf behavior, behavior, before Abimelech, so that he uh, drove him out, and he went away, uh, and the key line in that song is, taste and see that the Lord is good, and so we, we, we're given not, not just the psalm, but the actual historical context of the psalm, and uh, Psalm 56 is a mictam uh, of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath, and the key line there is, in God I trust, and Psalm fifty nine is another miktam of David, uh, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. And the key line in that psalm is, "Deliver me from my enemies." So you see from the Psalms of, uh, of David uh, that uh, they're 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 real life stuff. It's it's real life when. When we, uh, when we meet with the Lord and, and allow the Lord to work in our hearts and lives, we're dealing with, with, with the realities of life. This is not something that's separated from life, you know, um, from, the, from the, the reality of our lives. Uh, last week, Alex spoke uh, on the, the incident with David and Bathsheba and Uriah, and he read Psalm 51. And Because Psalm 51 is a psalm of David, and it is a psalm that is uh, uh, labeled from a specific time in, in David's life. And it says there at the heading of Psalm 51, it says, A psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So that's the context of the psalm, Psalm 51. And, uh, and so uh, when we read there, uh, you know, um, in Psalm 51... David's cry out to the Lord to, for forgiveness and for mercy, it's, uh, it's real. Today, we're in the book of Psalms, and we are going to Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is most likely the best known and most loved of all the Psalms. Some say it is the most uh, popular chapter of the entire Old Testament. Some would even say the whole Bible. It's a very well-known piece of literature. A very well-known portion of the Bible. Um, Psalm 23 is a psalm of David. Uh, It's not one of those psalms that is identified with a particular occasion in David's life. But I would suggest to you that there is enough evidence within the Psalm uh, Psalm 23 to uh, indicate that Psalm 23 is a psalm about David's whole life. I believe that Psalm 23 was written by David as he reflected on his life. I believe it was written later in his life as he looked back over his life And he is writing his testimony in the form of a a song of, of praise and prayer. And though we associate it with funeral services and death and dying, it's really a psalm of life. Of David's life. And maybe your life. If. But only if you can say, the Lord is my shepherd. So Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Shepherding is something that David knew and experienced from the very earliest days of his life. When God sent Samuel to find David, where did he find him? Out with the sheep right? Even as a boy, David lived with sheep. And uh, did you know that the scriptures refer to God's people as sheep more than 200 times? That's a lot of times. And it's not just that we are like sheep. It's also, that God is like a shepherd. Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Enter his courts with praise. Enter his, uh, his gates with thanksgiving. Know that he is God, that he has made us, and that we are the sh- the, his people, the sheep of his pasture. This is very personal for David. He says, he didn't just say, God is like a shepherd. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The idea is I will not lack. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters, and he restores my soul. The phrase still waters is literally waters of rest. And we've talked about rest. If you've been with us as we've gone through the scripture, the theme of rest is very important. Coming, uh, we saw it in Deuteronomy as they're ready to enter the land under Joshua, and then in the life of David, Second Samuel chapter seven, when God promises David uh, that He will build him a house. That the theme of rest is is dominant in the in the in in uh, throughout the narrative, and certainly in the life of David, and and it's literally here. Water, still waters, waters of rest. <laughs> of course, when you come to the New Testament, you have Jesus. Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. All through the book of Hebrews, we are in this week. By the way, that is not a sheet pen out there. Just a uh, clarify i know it looks like a sheep pen and it really looked like a pig pen on tuesday but uh, because of the muck but uh um so uh, yeah we've been we've been uh, in the book of hebrews this week and and the theme of rest is really really important there um but you know when we think of our needs i want to say to you this morning that the greatest and most pressing need we have is the need for forgiveness the greatest and most pressing need that we have is the need for forgiveness. You say, well, where where is that here in the text? Well, you can miss it if you're not careful. But when David says, um, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He follows that statement with this one. He says, He restores my soul. And the word restore there is used elsewhere in scripture and has a uh, a specific connotation. It's used in the sense um, uh, of conversion or repentance. Uh, If you're taking notes, you can write down Psalm 60 verse 1 and Isaiah 49 verse 5 as two examples of where we see this same verb used that way. And so David is thinking here about how the Lord restores his soul. That is, the Lord restores him back into a right relationship with the shepherd. How many of you know that passage of Scripture? All we, like sheep, have gone astray. It's Isaiah 53, right? Recently, as recent as last week, we were looking at David's sin with Bathsheba and against both Bathsheba and Uriah. And how devastating that, that was. Um, you know, there are, There are really two things that stand out in the life of David. And I want to, I want, this is something I want for us to understand here today. You know, when we talk about understanding the Bible, we talk about context. And rightly so, because context is more important than anything when it comes to determining what the meaning of a passage is. And when you ask the question, what is the context of Psalm 23? The answer to that question is the life of David. It's not so much Psalm 22 or Psalm 24, although that's certainly part of the context of Psalm 23. That's a literary context. But but really, really, if you really think about it, The real context of Psalm 23 is the life of David. And that's what we've been reading and that's what we've been studying and that's what we've been preaching about in the recent weeks is David, the shepherd boy, who was taken from the flocks and who was used of God as God made him to be king, shepherd, to shepherd his people, Israel. That's what God told David that. In he told David that in the context of Nathan's rebuke to him when he sinned with Bathsheba. David, the giant slayer who had that faith, the only one of the day who had that faith to stand up against that mouth giant. David, who had that covenant relationship with Jonathan, that unfailing love, that, that covenant that allowed him to then reach out to Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, after Jonathan and Saul were slain and bring him from the far reaches of the kingdom right into the king's house to sit at his table, that, that disabled, fearful, shame, ashamed son of the former person in line of the throne that threat, that enemy. That's the context of Psalm 23, all of that, David and Bathsheba. And the two things that stand out most if you study David's life, I don't mean a casual read, I mean if you really study David's life, the two things that stand out most, number one, I have to say, is his sin. And you might think, well, what what about his faith? What about his devotion? What about his heart for God? You know, David was a man after God's own heart. Well, we already talked about how that passage and that statement is misinterpreted and misunderstood. The reason I say David's sin stands out more is because because of all that. I don't know how many of you are here today that were here last week when we read through and Alex led us through that account. it's devastating because David is like, he's the great king, right? He's the underdog shepherd boy. He was the only one who would stand up. And and he did all those great things and he was a great warrior and he was a, a, a musician and a songwriter and, and he had this Great capacity to show people respect and compassion. And, and we're reading this and we're, we're in his corner and we're shouting and we're cheering him on because we want him to succeed so bad. Why? It's because we identify with him. It's because we all want, we all want that. Deep down inside, we want to we be what God made us and called us to be reflect his image, right? We want to be good. We want to be brave. We want to be faithful. We want to be loyal. We want to have integrity. Integrity. Here's David. Not only does he, he's supposed to be shepherding the people, and he takes Bathsheba, the only wife Uriah had, while David had Numbers, takes her, and then to compound that, to try to cover it up, you know? Contrast Uriah, who says, I will not go home to my life and my wife and comfort myself while my brothers in arms are out there in the battle which was where David was supposed to be, puts the letter in his hand, the letter to Joab that was his death sentence. Joab, who David had pronounced a curse on a few chapters ago because he killed Abner in cold blood, and David pronounced a curse on Joab, and and now he's going to use Joab to murder Uriah. He puts the message in Uriah's hand. Take this to Joab. You know what that means, don't you? It means that David knew that Uriah had complete integrity. He was a loyal friend. And David had him killed in a futile attempt to cover up his own sin. And when Nathan walks in, says David, and I'm not trying to re-preach last week's message, but you have to understand this is the context of Psalm 23. When Nathan walks in and and tells him this this story about somebody, David, you know, is the king. He's the Single Supreme Court Justice of the Land. And Nathan says there is a man who had one little lamb. And then there was this rich guy who had a whole block. Company comes over. You know the story. And at the end of the story, David's seething with anger. It's that's what it says. He just gets, he's just like, he's feeling like we're feeling when we watch what David does the one who we think is going to be the hero for us. And he's just hes just—he's just seething with anger. And he says, where is he? Because that man deserves to die. Bring him here. Let's put him to death right now. Nathan said, that won't be a problem. That will be easy enough because you are the man. And then Nathan goes and tells them the consequences of what's going to happen in his family. Read that. We're not going to be preaching that. Read that. Read about about Amnon and, and Tamar and Absalom because that's really important stuff. Okay. There's a lot in there that you really need to read through and think through as you're reading through the Psalms and the Proverbs this summer. But but read that. But but and then and then he says, uh, you know that. Uh, he pronounces numbers of consequences and so on. And then, and then he looks at David. And David says, oh, by the way, I forgot to mention. When David's so angry and he says, bring him in, he says, as the Lord lives, this man should die. He even brought God in. Judging himself. He passed judgment on himself as king and as supreme court justice of the land, and uh, and when it's all Nathan's done and he looks at David, David says, uh, "I have sinned against the Lord," and Nathan says, "The Lord has taken away your sin." That's one verse. Two chapters of agonizing failure and disappointment and disillusionment. And one verse says, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin. Do you know what the real scandal of the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah is? It's not the illicit sex. It's not the murderous treachery. The real scandal is the grace of God. When you feel that kind of anger, and you you should, we should, when David says, where is the man? He deserves to die. That's how we feel, isn't it? When you read the story of David, when you read the life of David, it's like, you dirty dog. How can you do that? this man's wife, this loyal friend. That is the most despicable thing that you've ever read. The scandal is the grace of God. He restores my soul. The context of Psalm 23 is the life of David. And David rightfully could not get over God's grace to him, his unfailing love. Psalm 51. It's really everywhere. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. Blot out my transgressions. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Also a psalm of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And in his spirit there is no deceit. Um, The the Apostle Paul picks up that statement in Romans chapter four, when he's talking in Romans chapter four about how God justifies the ungodly. Or in the in the authorized King James, it says, How God who justifies the wicked. <laughs> One of the most profound statements in the whole Bible. Because, because uh One of the things that it says throughout the Old Testament is how God deplores um, judges who equip the guilty and condemn the innocent. It's an abomination to the Lord. Because it's not just. And I bring it up to you this morning because if you study the New Testament, and you study how God justifies us, how the writer of uh, Paul, when he writes Romans, that's, um, that's a big, big, big part. If you want to understand the book of Romans, it's the most important thing to understand is this concept, that God, chapter 3, remains just while justifying us as sinners by taking the price on himself. He paid the price. All we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God takes away our sin by taking it upon himself. That's how he does it. That's how he covers it. That's how he atones or covers our sin and washes our sins away that's why it says that we are washed in the blood of Christ because the shed blood of Jesus is shed for the covering of our sin to atone for our sin so that God can remain just and be just and 100% consistent and righteous while at the same time forgiving the likes of you and me and David it's a scandal it's the scandal of the cross. If you study the word offense in the New Testament, the Greek word for offense is scandalon. It's a scandal, the scandal of the cross, the scandal of the, the cornerstone that is rejected by men, but chosen by God. Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious, also a Psalm of David. Listen, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And he goes on there. David does in Psalm 103. See, David, this idea that God would be there for him, having screwed up about as bad as you could possibly screw up. You know, maybe you're here this morning and you think that God can't forgive you because you're too bad or too wicked. Well, it's pretty hard to top what David did. Or maybe you're going to stand and look in judgment on David and say, yeah, well, I might be a sinner, but I am not as bad as him. Then you can go to the New Testament and read what Jesus said there about murder and adultery in the Sermon on the Mount. And then you can realize that that anger that you feel in your heart and that righteous indignation that you have towards that type of treacherous, murderous infidelity and, and that kind of sin that they've committed is really all of us, all of our sin. We're no better than David, no no worse. And when God has restored us, it says He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake, verse 3. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. When God has restored us, it's then and only then that we're able to walk in His in His ways. Walk in His paths. A though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, and your rod and your staff they comfort me. So, just a moment ago, we're lying in green pastures beside still waters. Now we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. In between, it says, He leads us in paths of righteousness. Do you suppose that? God is still leading us when we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. How many of you know that the blessed life with the Lord as our shepherd isn't all still waters and green pastures? One of the most disturbing statements in the Bible I find I have found is is Matthew chapter four verse one. Matthew chapter four is, all, is the first part of the chapter is all about Jesus being in the wilderness, being tempted of, of by the devil. There, right, the temptation in the wilderness of Christ, the temptation of Christ. But but verse one is is startling. It says, "Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil." It's it's it seems counterintuitive. It seems even unbiblical. Uh, to say it, you know, that the Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You say, well, didn't Jesus teach us to pray, lead us not into temptation? It's a funny thing about the word temptation, though. If you know this, it's a very interesting word because the word temptation and the word trial or test is the same. It's, there's only one word, it's the same word in the Greek and in the Hebrew. There's not two words, like one for te- special word for temptation. It's the same word, to test. So uh, Genesis chapter 22, God tested Abraham. But James says God doesn't, test, doesn't tempt anybody. So how does that work? Depends on who you're looking at. If you're looking at the devil, the Bible says he's the tempter. He tempts you to destroy you. But if you turn your eyes to God and look at the Lord, who is this great shepherd, why does he test us? The Bible says he tempts no man, but he does test us. Why? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is he wants to, to strengthen our faith and uh, he tries us to train us, but he also tests us so that we'll pull close to him. This psalm is very personal. This is the Lord is my shepherd. But when you get down to verse four, goes from the second person to the first person. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear no evil, for the Lord is with me. No, 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 for you are with me. God is not only with David in the valley of the shadow of death, uh, or uh, not only leading David, sorry, he is actually right there with him. And dare we say, with us. I mentioned that the greatest need we have is for the forgiveness of our sins. I would suggest to you the second greatest need we have that follows from that is the need for the presence of God in our lives. That's why when Peter preached Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when he stood and preached to them at the end of his message, he said, if you will respond to the gospel I'm preaching to you today, you will receive two things. You will receive the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The greatest need we have is for the... The most urgent need we have is for the forgiveness of our sins. The second greatest need we have is for the presence of God in our lives. You and I are nothing without the presence of God. We were made to be uh, indwelt by the Spirit of of the Lord. And without Him, um, we are nothing. And that first person... Continues uh, throughout to the end of the psalm. You notice in verse five, "You prepare a table before me in the presence of my head with oil. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows." What? What is that? What is that? I'd say that's victory. It's deliverance. It's exaltation. And it's and it's even more than that. I know we talk about the presence, preparing a table, the presence of mine enemies, and I, I, my mind went to Mephibosheth. Uh, but there's there's other places that, that, that we could read of the life of David that m- might inform our understanding of what David has in mind here. But you will notice that he's changed up the imagery now. Because up to this point, he's been using the imagery of a shepherd and sheep, and now the imagery has changed. Not only has it changed from second person to first person, That the imagery has changed from the imagery of the field to the imagery of the home. And I mentioned that, you know, over two hundred times in the Bible, God's people referred to as sheep. Shepherding is a very dominant biblical imagery, but there is an imagery that surpasses the imagery of the sheep and the shepherd in Scripture. And it's the imagery of family, especially in the New Testament, when Jesus rocked the disciples' world and said, "You, you need to call God your father." It's the imagery of the home and the family. Um, Luke twenty-two. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Revelation chapter 19, then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying, Hallelujah for the Lord our God, uh, the, uh, the Almighty reigns, let us rejoice and exalt, and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. The anointing of the head with oil uh the whole hospitality uh simon the pharisee jesus and simon the pharisee's house you know to the woman who knelt at his feet jesus says to simon since i came into your house you you haven't done anything for me to receive me as a guest you haven't anointed my head with oil but she has washed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair there's all kinds of stuff that could be uh, alluded to there but uh but I just want to draw your attention to the last uh, statement. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The word for mercy there is the Hebrew word hesed, which we've talked about a couple of weeks ago. It's all those psalms I was reading earlier. Where it talks about steadfast love. It's that covenant love. It's that unfailing love. It's that, it's that, that promised love of God that is as sure a, a commitment as God is faithful to forgive us and it says he says shall follow me all the days of my life The word follow in the Hebrew they say is, it's not strong enough it's the idea is pursue God's love pursued his loving mercy pursued David all the days of his life And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let me uh, give you a a new translation of that statement. I'm not trying to put this up and up with trusted translations. This is just my. This is kind of like my translation. I have a place in God's forever family. Remember when we took to the word house? Second Samuel chapter 7, you, you want to build me a house, David? Listen, I will build you a house. He's talking there, the word house becomes a, met, a metonym for family. And when David says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, I, I really think that that's the, that's the idea. It's not, it's not confined to some temple made with hands or anything like that. It's really about being, having a place in God's family forever. And when God brings you into his family, it's a forever thing. I have a place in God's forever family because of his unfailing love and commitment and mercy to me. Now, listen to me as I I finish up with this. We are not automatically his sheep we need to understand this and this is why it's so important to read things in context psalm 23 needs to be understood in the context of david's life why could david say the lord is my shepherd not just anybody can say that this psalm is is loved and recited and cherished by millions of people but not just anyone can say the lord is my shepherd Listen to these words from Jesus. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give to them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Jesus said I give my life for the sheep and he extends an invitation and the invitation goes out and it's going out to all of us here today have you responded to his gracious invitation to enter into his forever family through the covenant of his unfailing love, he said, I give my life for the sheep. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. See, David had that kind of a relationship with God. He could say, The Lord is my shepherd, and I have a place in the family of God's forever family. I have a place in his family forever because of his unfailing love for me. Have you personally responded to the invitation that God gives to you to enter his family so that you can say not just, The Lord is a shepherd, but the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death... I will fear no evil because you are with me and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever because the Lord is my shepherd. Is he your shepherd? Have you accepted that invitation? It's an invitation for relationship. Do you have that kind of relationship with him where you are accepting the promise, the invitation, and he welcomes you into his family based on his unfailing love, his amazing grace, his willingness to sacrifice himself for you so that you could be forgiven? That's good timing. Why don't you stand? And we'll pray and uh, we'll, go on, we'll go into our day. But I hope that as we pause to pray this morning before you go, um, that you will give the Lord a moment of time right now to consider the state of your soul before him? Have you trusted him to restore your soul? Do you know him? Does he know you? When he says, my sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. Is that you? If you haven't taken that step to respond to his invitation, his gracious, scandalous invitation, The scandal of the cross, that God himself would take upon himself my sin and die in my place. Have you responded to that invitation? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, and I'm just wondering if there's somebody here today that would like to say yes to that invitation this morning. God can see your heart. He knows exactly where you are. You know whether you've responded or not. And so if you're here today and you have not responded, I would like to lead you in a simple prayer. If you would pray along with me in your heart and just say, Lord, I have been convicted by the truth of your word in Psalm 23 this morning. I want for you to be my shepherd. And I know that I am a sinner and I know that I am in, condemned by my sin without your forgiveness. But I thank you that you love me with that unfailing love that you are willing to die for me. And I accept you as my Savior. Right now, I claim the promise of forgiveness according to your word. To all that would come to you, you would not cast any aside. That you would receive all who come. And I claim that promise. I, I, I respond to your voice through your word today and say, Jesus, please, please forgive me for my sin. Lord God, please become my shepherd that I might be one of your sheep and have the forgiveness of my sin and the gift of your spirit living inside of me that I would know your presence all the days of my life and know that when I die that that doesn't change anything because I have a place in your family forever. Lord, I thank you for this assembly this morning. I pray you'd bless each one with the conviction of your spirit through your word. As we go into this day and in the weeks and months ahead, Lord willing, uh, may we live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've made any kind of decision this morning, I would love to talk with you about that. Thank you and God bless your day.